Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. This is the most well-known passage in the Bible uh, on the subject of marriage. And so that's our topic today. And uh, just at the outset, all right, let me say, I know... The topic of marriage uh, brings up all kinds of instinctive reactions in you. Uh, It brings up all kinds of feelings in you, various feelings, probably more so than most other topics you would hear me teach on on a given Sunday. So right at the front end, I want to just take a second here. Let's let's just address various um, groups in the room, okay? Some of you are single and you want to be married. And so this is a hard topic for you. You might be tempted right now just to kind of check out. Um, some of you are divorced. Uh, and this is a topic that is challenging and may even bring up some trauma for you. I, I'm aware of that. Okay. Some of you are in really troubled marriages. Uh, and this is a topic that's awkward and, and hard. And you're not looking forward to the next three hours where I'm teaching. Just kidding. The next 25 minutes. Uh, some of you are in marriages that are, are doing pretty well, but struggle with, you know, the garden variety highs and lows and hurts and joys and losses and victories. And, and you might not know what you're thinking about this text. And, and some of you are children who are watching your parents work in marriage or lack thereof, and, and you're being formed and shaped by what you experience in a lot of ways that you can't really even comprehend yet. And I think that covers most of us. Marriage is a really, really ancient institution. It's been around basically as long as humanity has, and it's observed by every single culture and nation. And it's something that contains within it some of the most beautiful things about being a human and some of the most painful things about being a human. And the main thing I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus Christ is with you. He's with you whether you're not married and want to be, whether you were once married and are sad about it, whether you're still married and struggling, or whether you're still married and doing well. 
And, and let me also say that that goes for me and Mary Ann too. This morning, maybe even more than most, I am a beggar pointing other beggars to where bread can be found. And as much as anything, and preaching to myself. So let's just take a moment and believe what's true here. All of scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for every one of us, even this part of scripture, one that may touch a nerve in your life, one that may challenge you, one that may comfort you, one that may rebuke you. And it's also true that when we engage in the work of marriage and when we seek to obey God by leaning into our roles and our responsibilities, there's no better picture in the universe of the good news of the gospel. So last week, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, told us that walking in wisdom and being filled with the Holy Spirit means, verse 21 of chapter 5, that we will be submitting to one another out of reverence for the Lord. Mutual submission is the way I described it last week. And now, beginning in verse 22 and going all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes about how that overarching principle of mutual submission is worked out in three mission-critical areas of life. Marriage the life of a family, parents and children, and work. And so that's what we're going to look at today and next week. Today we're going to look at how the gospel is played out in marriages. That's Paul's main driving aim. Marriage is, in essence, an illustration of the gospel. It's a living representation of the gospel because marriage is, in essence, about self sacrifice. So let's look at three things, okay? The role of the wife, the role of the husband, and the role of the gospel. First, Paul writes about the role of the wife, verses 22 through 24. And he gives one big command that's sort of an umbrella command. And then he gives his reasoning for it. The command's found there in verse 22, where he says that wives should submit, that's the command, to your own husband's as to the Lord. Now, that is a jarring statement, a controversial statement in and of itself in our culture. And some of you might be squirming a little bit, even as you hear me read that verse, and that's okay, by the way. It does seem, based on the milieu we find ourselves in, to some of us to be oppressive and unfortunate. I I get that. But let me just say this at the outset, almost as a prequel to the text itself. The fact that Paul addresses wives at all in an ancient letter in the Roman Empire, along, by the way, with children and slaves, is radically and profoundly liberating. This just didn't happen in the ancient world. But in the Bible, wives and children and slaves are addressed equally with husbands and fathers and mothers and masters. They have their own standing before the Lord, which is as responsible, honorable, and important as the standing of the husband or the parent or the master. There is in Scripture and in the Christian faith an inherent equality here. And the inherent equality 
that makes some of us want to reject the idea of a wife submitting to a husband, it's, it's kind of ironic because the inherent equality comes from the scriptural teaching that all people are created in the God, image of God and therefore all people have equal dignity, value, and worth. And, and ironically, the reason people sometimes squirm at the Christian teaching on submission is because of the Christian teaching on equality. And so at the outset, let me just say, the Bible is radically liberating for people groups like women and children and servants who historically have been oppressed in most cultures in the world. So given that, let's look at what the text actually says. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? That's what Paul writes here. So we have to make heads or tails of it. To submit, it means to intentionally and self-consciously sacrifice your will and self-interest for the good of someone else. In this case, your husband. So Paul's saying, and the Bible everywhere teaches, that when you get married, you are being called by God to give up your rights to unilaterally make your own decisions. You're surrendering your independence as a woman who gets married to a husband. And now to immediately qualify that, nowhere here or anywhere else in the Bible is it implied or is it said that wives submit to husbands because the husbands are superior in any way whatsoever. Submission does not imply inferiority. The scriptures are emphatic that men and women are created in full equality in God's image. A parallel, by the way, that might help understand that is another teaching in the Bible, which talks about the submission of Jesus as the son, the second person of the Trinity, to the father, the first person of the Trinity. Jesus being submitted to the father in no way implies the inferiority of the son to the father, What it implies, rather, is that the Son has a particular role in relation to the Father within the Trinity, which is exactly Paul's teaching on Christian marriage. The wife has a particular role in relation to her husband within marriage. Her role is to be submissive. So why? Why is the wife to submit to her husband? Look at what Paul says. For, that's a reason, here's the purpose. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That word head means that the husband's God-given role in a marriage is to act as a protective, serving authority with regard to his wife. The wife's role is to submit to his loving, protective, servant-oriented authority. So the issue of submission is not, hear me, it's not about inherent rights or inherent dignity. It's about assigned roles. And, And early in the Bible, Genesis 2, which Paul quotes here in verse 31, helps us. In Genesis 2, before sin even enters the world, the first thing that God says is not good. Anybody know? Is that man is alone. That's right, in Genesis 2. And so God creates 
a, a woman, Eve, to, to partner with the man. And, and the woman is called, in most translations, a helper, a helper suitable for the man. That word helper, I actually think, is a good word to help us understand the nature of a wife's submission to her husband. But the word helper really is too weak. A better translation is the word partner or even strong help. Because the idea is that the woman, in becoming a wife to her husband, helps make her husband complete. That's the whole point of the Genesis 2 narrative, which is why Paul's referencing it here. The wife brings particular abilities and endowments and gifts that provide a fullness and a wholeness in marriage that otherwise is lacking. Hence the term one flesh, which Paul quotes in verse 31, and which is a famous term term describing what marriage is. So the implication is that within marriage, each partner, husband and wife, is incomplete without the other. Male and female are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they're not exactly alike, but nor are they randomly different. They're differentiated such that together they create a complete whole. So the wife submits because God has provided particular roles to husbands and wives within marriage. And when these roles are faithfully, through repentance and faith, lived out, there is a unity. There's a wholeness. There's a Jerry Maguire level, you complete me, that there wouldn't be otherwise. So what does submission look like? What does submission look like in practice? If you notice, there's basically no, well, not basically, there are no specific guidelines in the Ephesians 5 text here. And again, I want to emphasize the point is that submission entails a willful giving up of your own direction, not of your own dignity, your own direction to serve and follow another. So let me just say a few things about what submission is not perhaps to be more instructive, and then we'll move on. Three things submission is not. First, submission does not mean that you women have no say. Hear me, okay? Nor does it mean that you are not more gifted, skilled, intelligent, thoughtful, and competent than your husband in all kinds of areas. My marriage, that is absolutely the case, more often than not. Wives get a vote. Wives get a vote in marriage, okay? You can't have a marriage without disagreement. If you have a marriage without disagreement, you have an unhealthy marriage, by the way. And a wife disagreeing with her husband is not a violation of this passage. Did you hear me? A wife disagreeing with her husband is not a violation of this passage. A wife overruling and disrespecting her husband is. But a wife does get a vote. It doesn't mean submission that you have no say. Secondly, submission doesn't mean that you are to submit to every man. That's not what the text says. It says wives submit to your husband, not generally speaking to all men. This is not patriarchy. One thing it sure doesn't mean is that abuse is ever 
acceptable. Physical, verbal, emotional, or sexual cannot be justified from this passage nor any other part of God's word. And if you're experiencing that as a woman, you should reach out to me or perhaps even to the civil authorities. It doesn't mean submission that you submit to every man and it doesn't justify in any way abusive behavior. Thirdly, submission does not mean unconditional obedience. Uh, All human authority is derivative authority. The authority of a husband is derivative. The authority of a pastor is derivative. The authority of a father and mother is derivative. Only God's authority is ultimate. So submission doesn't mean that a husband can command something of a wife that God forbids. Nor does it mean that a husband can forbid something of a wife that God requires. Submission means that the way God calls wives to live is to selflessly become more like Jesus through respecting and submitting to their husbands in every area of life. That's the role of the wife. Secondly, the role of the husband. Beginning in verse 25, Paul describes the role of the husband. And like he did with the wives, with husbands, he gives a one-word summary. Look, verse 25, husbands, love. That's the summary. Love your wives. It's repeated again in verse 28 and then again in verse 33. And in these verses devoted to husbands, which, by the way, are significantly longer than the verses devoted to wives, um, the main thing we're to see is that husbands serve and live as husbands well by by loving. So here's a critical principle, a critical principle for the Christian view of marriage. Both wives and husbands are to be self-giving, not self-serving. Both wives and husbands are to be self-giving, not self-serving. Wives give of self by submitting and husbands give of self by loving. Pastor Brian Chappell, in his book on Ephesians, puts it this way. He writes, quote, Both loving and submission are not calls to be less than you are. They are calls to fully use your gifts, time, and energy for the good of another, not for self-glory. It's beyond dispute that Paul's main idea is that husbands lead their wives by sacrificially Loving them. Notice how many times the word as is used in these verses. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. Verse 28, husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Verse 33, husbands then, by comparison, are leaders in the sense, not identically, but in the sense that Jesus is a leader. Husbands are heads in the sense that Jesus is a head. That is to say, they are servant leaders. The authority a husband exercises in marriage is always, without exception, a servant authority. His authority is real, but it is an authority that is radically transformed by the way of Jesus and by the gospel who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. As a quick aside, 
there is a, um, a strain of Christian teaching on marriage that's, I think, actually growing in influence in our culture that really talks about the roles of husband and wife in a way that overplays the authority piece. It implies that the role of the husband is primarily, primarily one of leadership. And the, the language that's used in this kind of teaching is that the husband's role is to make sure the train's leaving the station on time, basically. The husband's role is to make all the decisions. The husband needs to be brought into the loop on all manner of things, and so on and so forth. The big concern in this strain of teaching is the idea of abdication. That a husband is abdicating his responsibility and his leadership and his authority. And the strain of teaching that I'm talking about emphasizes this from a passage like Ephesians 5 by talking about what is really the implicit opposite of the role of the wife. That is, if the role of the wife is to submit, then the role of the husband must be to lead or to be submitted to. But notice the word lead is not used in this passage at all. In fact, the word authority isn't even used in this passage. The word head does imply authority without question. But the word love is used three times. If you husbands define your role in marriage primarily in terms of leadership and not love, then Houston, we have a problem. Okay? It's quite probable that we men can lead in ways that are not loving. But if we are primarily seeking to love, healthy leadership is going to follow. So what does it look like for a husband to love a wife in this way, in the way Paul's speaking about? Um, This word isn't in the passage, but I think it's a great one-word summary of what it means for a husband to sacrificially love his wife as Christ loves the church. It's a word that was in many of your marriage vows. The word is cherish. A husband loves his wife sacrificially by cherishing her. Would you give your wife your time? Would you give your wife your words? When your wife asks you what, what's wrong, you don't have to like, you know, be the Marlboro man with a cig in your mouth, you know, nothing. I'm fine. You know, conquering the West. Give her your words. Cherish her. Would you give your wife your feelings? When the Bible uses the language of love, this is what it means. You are called to cherish another above yourself. Men, how much are you willing to lose for the sake of your wife? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time and emotion and resources are you willing to invest in her? Loving your wife means cherishing A few practical thoughts before we move on. I gave three practical thoughts for what submission is not. Three quick practical thoughts for what love is. First, you love and cherish your wife, I think, when you learn to speak your wife's language or dialect. R.C. Sproul, um, late theologian, tells a great story about he and his wife, whose name was Vesta. And he says that one year for his birthday... 
R.C. really wanted something that he would never buy for himself. He wanted a brand new set of golf clubs. And his wife, Vesta, was a very practical person. And she knew that he needed white shirts. And so she bought him for his birthday six beautiful, creased, and lightly starched white shirts. R.C. writes, I tried not to show my disappointment. But when it came time for Vesta's birthday, a few months later, R.C. didn't do much better. He wanted to give her something lavish, something extravagant, the female equivalent of a new set of golf clubs, right? And so he bought her a fur coat, not realizing that what she really wanted and what she had told him she wanted was a new washer and dryer because she was a practical Woman, You see what they were doing. They were both trying to express their love to each other, but they were speaking their own languages to a person who needed to hear love in a different dialect. Gary Chapman's wonderful book, The Five Love Languages, I think actually is quite helpful here. You cherish your wife by learning to speak. Like, I've got to learn to speak Marianne more fluently than I do now. Secondly, husbands cherish and love your wives by listening to them, especially when they offer criticism and corrective, even when they do it poorly. Listen to your wife, especially when she offers criticism, even when she does it poorly. We men, this is true for women too, but I'm talking to men right now. We tend not to see how self-centered we really are. That's one reason why marriage is so instrumental for our sanctification. Our wives will tell us. <laughs> They'll tell us how self-centered we are. What a gift. Isn't that a gift, men? No one's saying amen, shockingly. None of you men. Thank you, men. Paul Tripp, uh, Pastor Paul Tripp, who was one of my professors in seminary, told this story very often. He talked about a time he and his wife, Luella, were in an argument because Luella had offered him what she thought was some constructive feedback about some of the ways he was living in their relationship and living in the world. And Paul, I'm sure this never happens to any of us, but Paul got defensive and upset and screamed out. He was a pastor in a church at the time and screamed out in the moment, 99% of the women in the church would love to be married to me. (laughs) To which Luella, without missing a beat, said, I'm in the 1%. I should probably just pray right now. (laughs) Listen to your wife. Third, husbands cherish and love by leading in confession and repentance. If there's one thing servant leadership looks like in this fallen world, then surely it is the husband being the first to confess his sin to his wife, being quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to offer it and regularly repenting and going back to the well of the gospel. It's not so much that any of us fall out of love as we fall out of repentance. Marriage is like a garden. We have to regularly be pulling weeds and planting good seeds. Husbands cherish and love and lead by pulling weeds through confession and through repentance. Is your life as a husband one that can be typified by sacrificial, servant-oriented love. Third, the role of the gospel. And I think we need it by now. Verse 22, 32, excuse me, Paul writes, this mystery is profound. 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's the mystery he's talking about here? Well, he's just quoted from Genesis 2 on marriage. And he's now saying that marriage, it's so intertwined with the gospel that talking about marriage is talking about the gospel. And living out marriage is living out the gospel. Marriage was invented by God to portray and display the work of Jesus for his people. It's a picture, a living illustration of the gospel. And the key to unlocking flourishing and health in marriage is the gospel. Why? Well, hang with me. Think about it. The gospel is that God himself gave up his own rights and sacrificed himself for the other, for us. And marriage, as we've seen, is each party sacrificing his or her own rights and privileges for the good of the other. It replicates the gospel every day. When we are more and more resting in the gospel, we can grow in our marriages. And frankly, only then will it really happen. Think about what marriage teaches us. At least it teaches us two things. First, it teaches that you really are that bad. Do you know that? If you don't, get married. You really are that bad. Why can marriage be so hard? Because you see the depth of sin in your spouse and your spouse sees the depth of sin in you that no one else does. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He writes, the one person in the whole world who holds your heart in her hand, whose approval and affirmation you most long for and need is the one who is hurt more deeply by your sins than anyone else on the planet. So it can show us, marriage, how much we need forgiveness and how costly it is to grant. But secondly, marriage can show us that you really are that loved. Marriage can show us that, which is why it's so powerful and beautiful. The the person who knows you best and against whom you sin the most in this world among humans is the person who can forgive you and love you through it. Because they know the love of Jesus for them. No human relationship can approximate so well God's love for us in Christ. Marriage has a unique power to show us the truth of who we are, to redeem our past, and to heal us through love. Paul says here that Christ laid down his life for us, forgiving us at great cost to make something beautiful. And because he has done that for us, we can do it for marriage, for others, most of all in marriage. Wrap up with this story. Uh, I read this week about an old czar in Russia who had a trusted general who was dying. And when the general was on his deathbed, the czar promised to the general that he would raise his own son and provide for his young son as if he were his own. And after the general's death, uh, the czar made good on his word and he gave the young boy the best places to live, the best education. He, he gave the boy a, a commission when he grew up and the boy entered the army. However, the young man had an addiction to gambling. And because he couldn't cover his gambling debts, he began to embezzle from the funds of his regiment. And one night, 
He was sitting in his tent looking at the books and he realized that his embezzlement was, was about to be discovered. He couldn't hide it any longer from the accountants. And so he sat there drinking heavily and prepared to kill himself. He had a gun sitting right there next to him on the desk. And he took a few more drinks to strengthen his resolve for the suicide. But the drinks were too potent, as they tend to be. And, and he passed out drunk on table on top of the accounting book. The same night, the czar was doing what he often did. He was walking through the camp and through the ranks, disguised as a simple soldier, trying to assess the morale of his army, hearing what he could hear. And he walked into his foster son's tent and saw him slumped over the book. And he read the book and he realized what his foster son had done and what he was planning to do. And when the young man woke up hours later, to his surprise, the gun was gone. And then he saw a letter by his hand. And to his shock, it was a promissory note. And it said this, I, the czar, will pay the full amount from my own personal funds to make up the difference found in this book. And it was sealed with the czar's personal seal. The czar had seen the young man's sin clearly, the full dimensions of what he had done. But he had covered it. He had paid for the sin personally. Marriage allows us daily opportunities to remember and believe the gospel for ourselves because we can every day say to our spouse, whether you're a wife or whether you're a husband, I see your sin and I can cover it with forgiveness because Jesus saw my sin and covered it. May our marriages more and more and more reflect Jesus and his church. Let's pray.